This is the Elevate Church Podcast. For a list of messages and for all updates about events and more information, check out our Instagram, Facebook, or visit elevate.city. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Here's today's message. So congratulations to Elevate Church on your wonderful renovation and moving into your facility on Easter Sunday. We were here, and there was a big tub of water over here, and a lot of baptisms took place. It was a great day. I want to say to Pastor Jeff, um, thank you for uh, listening to the voice of the Lord. When, When a church happens... It's an idea that is birthed in the mind of God first, and then a pastor whose mind is aligned with the Lord's starts the work. So this is a tremendous work here that is due to not only Pastor Jeff, but this was birthed in the mind of God, and so I have no doubt that you're going to do well here. We have... um, I made a note to myself this morning to say to you, Pastor Jeff, and to your First Lady, Jess, don't be dismayed at what you're about to see. That's what I woke up thinking this morning. Don't be dismayed at what you're about to see. The battle is not yours. It's not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. And uh, so I brought a commendation with me from the speaker uh, and uh, myself congratulating Elevate Church on your beginning, sort of, your second beginning. And uh, this, I want to present this to you today, Pastor. So, you know, uh, just so you know, in, in this country, 200 churches close every week. Every week, 200 churches close. 10,000 churches a year close their doors but not elevate. And so the state of Ohio wants to recognize how much we value Elevate Church and how appreciative we are that you have begun here in this location. So congratulations. Uh, I'm just going to get right into my story because it's um, long, because I'm old. and so we've, we've, we, we have prayed a lot today, but I wanted to talk today that, and tell you that fear is the enemy. And in my life, that has been true. Fear has always been my enemy. And I don't know if you have any fear in your life, but if you live long enough, you will. And uh, when I was elected to public office in March of 2016, we won the primary, and then I had about six or eight months before the general election. And during that time, I began to read the book of Esther, and um, the Lord just drew me to that book again. It's a short book. And there was a scripture in there. It's it's Esther 4.12, and I'm reading from the Message Bible, but uh, it says, this is Mordecai speaking to his cousin Esther. And he says to her, don't think that just because you live in the king's house that you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, Help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else. But you and your family will be wiped out. And who knows, maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. And uh, I was very drawn to that story because of my story. And so my message to you today is to, I want you to think about if you were created for more than what you are now doing in your life. 
Um, you have no idea what God can do with a hungry heart. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says to the church, I've set an open door in front of you, and you just have a little strength. So are you going to go through the door? That's what he speaks to us. And many of you, most of you, I would say, have really not yet come into your full calling in Christ. And that should make you feel optimistic because your greatest days are ahead of you. And I'm speaking that over you. Don't run from your calling. And there are several reasons why people don't follow their calling. The first one is, as I've mentioned, is fear. Fear of failure and fear that you're wasting your time. Uh, the second reason is a lot of people have a difficult past. You have failed in areas of your past in personal relationships or in other things morally. A lot of different ways you can fail. People are, thirdly, are wounded. They've been wounded by family situations and by abuse and neglect. Rape and incest is very, very common in our culture. Broken families and fractured relationships keep us wounded. And it's a tool the enemy uses to paralyze us. And of course, the one that I face, which is that the task is so overwhelming. And many times I say to my husband, I feel like I'm standing at the bottom of the Niagara Falls holding my hand up. Because abortion is a big issue and life, pro-life, is a big issue. So when I was a little girl, I found out that my mother and father had had a child before me that I never met. And uh, my parents, uh, in the, they were married in the 1950s, and they had a daughter named Diana. And uh, my parents were backslid, and they were not together. They had separated, and they had, my mother had decided that she was not going to stay married to my father anymore. And uh, my dad was in the military, and so my mother told me, she said, you don't know how hard I was. My heart was, heart was very hard toward your dad, and I, I wasn't going to stay with him. And uh, so a woman who had the gift of prophecy came to my mother, and she said, if you don't reconcile with Jay, one of your children is going to be taken from you. And so at that time, I had a brother and a sister, Terry and Diana. And they were four and two. Diana was four. And my mother became afraid, and she, because she had a lot of confidence in this woman. And um, she said to her mother, she said, do you think this is possible? And my grandmother said, she said, I don't know. And so my father came home from the military. They were in an apartment in Newport, Kentucky. He spent the night on the couch. My mother was in the bedroom. And my sister got up early in the morning and went outside to play and ran into the street, and she was killed. She was hit by a truck and killed instantly, and she died. My father went outside and saw her. My mother never came out. And uh, it was the beginning of their reconciliation. See, God sees the big picture, you see. And uh, they came back to the Lord. My mother most likely had a nervous breakdown at that time. And they reconciled and came back to God. They've now been married next month, 67 years. <laughs> and so all that time um, at our table, we have, you know, tables, you can get four people around a table or six. 
And all of our lives, we always had a one empty chair at our table. And if you've ever lost a child, you know what I'm talking about. And so as I was growing up, I found out, you know, I came 11 months later and I found out I had the sister. She was killed and I looked just like her. And uh, so my parents, were, I think, were somewhat overprotective of me, pretty much. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to do a lot, go anywhere. Never went to a bowling alley or skating rink or any place that served alcohol. And, and uh, so when, you know, my, my, I would wake up during the night, my mother would have a mirror under my nose. She would be checking to see if I was breathing. She always thought I was going to die all the time. And uh, so, you know, when you grow up and your parents are very protective of you, you... Uh, you become fearful for yourself, and you become backward and shy. And so I was very shy in high school and all through school. I was a good girl, but uh, I met my husband in uh, high school, and I would look at the floor. When he would walk by me, I would look at the floor, and I wouldn't talk to him. He thought I was stuck up, but I was just really backward. And so I had a speech teacher in high school, and he said, I want you to start making speeches. Um, to win scholarship money. And I said, are, are you completely insane? I'm never doing that. And he said, no, you're doing it. You're doing it. And so I, he began to enter me in speech contests all over the state of Ohio. Me and my mother and my father would go. And I kept winning trophies. And then I kept winning scholarship money. And I didn't like it. I didn't want to do it. And I was resisting the drawing of the Lord who was trying to lead me into my life's work. But I was resistant to it. And so I would get sick. I would, they would have to pull the car over, and I would throw up on the side of the road. And then we would go inside, and I would win a trophy. And then we'd get in the car and go back home. And I had this horrible fear of public speaking. And, but I kept doing it because I, my teacher made me do it. And so I, on the, my day of graduation, I said to Mr. Boland, when I graduate today, I'm never speaking in public again. So that was my famous last words. And, uh, and I kept that promise for 30 years. I never spoke in public for 30 years. And, and you know, there is something beyond our natural uh, ability that God helps us with. The thing that you fear the most may be the thing that God will draw you to. Remember, Moses told God, I can't talk. I can't talk. And God said, you can talk and you will talk. And he became a great deliverer. But I began to pray Lord, make me want to do this thing that you want me to do. I want more of you than I have ever known. And so give me what you want from me. And so I became a, a mom and a, a paralegal. I worked at a large law firm in Westchester, and I was always the person in the back controlling the thermostat and writing notes for my attorney and all these things. And in uh, 2007, I went to Community Pregnancy Center and became a, the executive director there. And I was always very pro-life, but I was very afraid about speaking in public again. That fear came back to me. And uh, I thought, I can do everything that I need to do here. I can administer a staff, and I can raise money, but I can't speak in churches because I just can't do that. And so once again, um, you know, pull over the side of the road, throw up, go in the church and speak. So this was, this was my thing. And uh, eventually, I got more relaxed about it, you know, as, as I became more familiar with the topic. I saw my senator out publicly uh, at that time, and the heartbeat bill had just started to roll along in the state house. And I was a little political, not much, but I knew that he had not, he was not terribly supportive of it. And um, 
I was joking with him, and I said, what are you doing up there anyway? The heartbeat, Bill, why can't you pass that? What's going on? And he had some excuses, and I said, don't make me come up there. So I was just joking. <laughs> so now I'm up there. And um, in 2016, my husband and I uh, took a trip somewhere, and I told Ken, I said, I think there was a seat opening up at the state house in the, state, in the uh, house. I said, maybe we should try to run. And so we decided to do that, not knowing what we were doing. And, um, you know, God has a job for every one of us, and it's for you. And if you say no, he will give it to someone else. So you should say yes, no matter how much you don't want to. My county party thought I was too conservative, too pro-life, too, um, you know, invisibly conservative. And um, But we ran hard, and we went to the church. We went to the church that was pro-life. And the church likes pro-life in this area. And so I, I uh, began, we began to work. And we got down to the end of the campaign. My opponent spent two times more money than, I, than we did. And uh, we were down to the end and, of the campaign, and I, we kind of ran out of money. And I said to my husband, uh, you know, we had set aside $15,000 to put a new roof on our house. We had a leak in our bedroom. And I said, you know what, if we took that roof money... Now, I don't recommend this, okay? All you Dave Ramsey people, don't have a breakdown. <laughs> I said, I've, we've got this 15000 I said, if we could, we could spend that on mailers, we could, we could maybe win. And my husband, he said, you better pray for a windstorm. So we, we bought mailers and sent, our, sent mailers out at the end. And, of course, we won with a bad roof. And that was in March. In April, Kent and I were sitting in the living room having, uh, watching Andy Griffith like we do every night on the TV trays, you know. And uh, it was raining outside, not a whole lot, but some. And uh, the doorbell rang, and it was the neighbor, and a neighbor man. And he, he uh, opened the door, and, and he said, hey, did you want me to help you pick up all the shingles in your front yard because your roof's gone? And I said, it is. And so we looked out, and there was all these shingles all over the front yard. So the insurance put a new roof on my house. <laughs> when I got to the state house, you know, we went through a lot of training on how to be state reps, and, and my life changed drastically. And I remember being in the elevator, and um, all, everybody in the elevator with me was a man, and they were all lawyers, and they were all wearing suits, and they were all taller than me. And I looked around and I thought, what am I doing here? And how did I get here? Now I've been there two and a half years. Now I look around the elevator and think, what are you all doing here? <laughs> because I have an agenda and my agenda is life. And the longer I have spent doing this work, the more a hold of me it gets the more uh, attached I become to my agenda of life. When I got to the state house, I had just gotten there, and uh, we were in caucus, which is where we meet just before we go into session. 
And the speaker looked over at me. I, we, we sit up on a, on a sort of a dais. And he said, I'd been there 19 days. 19 days. I didn't even know the names of anybody around me. I didn't even know how Bill went through very quickly, you know, very easily. And he said, the heartbeat bill is back after eight years. And, and I just thought, what's he, what's he looking at me for? <laughs> you know, what's he, what's he going to say? And uh, he came over to me later on and he said, Candace, will you get up and speak today on the floor about life? And uh, I, I became terribly afraid again. You know, that old thing came back. And I, I thought, oh, no, I can't. I, I can't. But I, when we got onto the house floor, uh, I looked up in the gallery, and there were all these pastors and all these pro-lifers that were up there watching that had worked so hard for so long. But I was the one who had access to the microphone. And uh, so I, on the house floor, we never have anything with us in the way of pen or paper or anything. And I sent an aide to get me something to write on, and I wrote down everything I could think of. And uh, so I stood and made the speech. And I'll never forget the speaker said to me, I said, why don't you get you know, someone else? And he said, if you don't speak, no one else is willing. And I thought, oh, well, now I have to because no one else is willing. There were a few others who spoke. When I spoke, uh, the bill, we did pass it, and we passed it off to the Senate it passed in the Senate, and then the governor vetoed it. So we came back to the next General Assembly and started all over again. We did it again. Again, by this time, I knew my, had my bearings. We passed it again. We got it to the Senate, and when we got it to the Senate, it failed by one vote. So we came back again this January, and we did it again. And in case you don't know what the heartbeat bill is, it is a bill that says that when there's a heart beating, a doctor is not permitted to abort that child, which is after about the sixth week. This bill will save about 20,000 babies a year. During the time that we were getting through the second vote, uh, we were doing our budget, our annual or biennium budget, and uh, there's a scripture that I've held on to the entire time I've done ministry work, and it's Ephesians 6, 12. And it is when Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he says to them, you're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And you know, when I read that, it, it makes me feel relief to know, oh, that it's not them. It's This is spiritual wickedness in a high place. And I experienced it firsthand when we were doing the budget, and our budget had Planned Parenthood in it, and a lot of nonsense, a lot of yucky stuff that I just thought was ridiculous. You know, museums over in Greene County, alcohol-flavored ice cream, just a boatload of garbage. And uh, I told the speaker, there were 17 of us that vote, were voting no on it, and they needed 60 votes, and they were at 59, and I said, no, I'm not voting for this. It's got a bunch of garbage in it. And he, they call you in and, and um, surround you. It's kind of like the movies, kind of like television. And uh, they pressure you to vote yes. And Well, I kind of heard that this might happen. I, I wasn't quite ready. Uh, but I stood the whole time, about 45 minutes, and they kind of stood around me. And... Um, 
threaten you, kind of. And uh, I was quiet. I've never been so afraid, I don't think. And I was quiet. And finally, the speaker said to me, if you don't vote for this budget, we're going to take your seat from you. Well, that was it. I am a woman, after all. And you don't tell women stuff like that. <laughs> and I said, um, you can't take my seat from me. God gave me this seat. In fact, God gave you your seat. In fact, the only reason you're sitting in that speaker's chair is because God lets you sit there. And the majority leader was over to my right. You know, these are people that are brilliant. Yale-educated attorneys. And here I am with my little tiny English degree from, you know, the little Pentecostal girl from southwest Ohio with the long hair and the long dresses. That's me. The knuckle-dragging Neanderthal, remember? And then, you know, so they're very condescending. And so the majority leader, he said, Candace, Jim Jordan loves this budget. Do you know who Jim Jordan is? Jim Jordan is the most conservative person in the state of Ohio. And I said, he, well, they wouldn't let me talk. After several minutes, finally I said, well, if you'll be quiet, I'll answer all your questions. And I said, I do know who Jim Jordan is. I've got his cell phone number in my phone, and he's having a fundraiser for me at the end of this year. And he's not the most conservative person in Ohio because I am. <laughs> and he's not seen this budget because we got it five seconds ago. So that was my exposure to being uh, bullied, I guess you'd say. And I would say to you, because we've all been there, the enemy will try to crush you and humiliate you. Um, but God will literally put you back together in front of them. Because a year to the day later, I passed the heartbeat bill. You know, God has a sense of humor about those things. And um, I noticed last April, uh, a year ago, I was reading the paper and my husband was in the kitchen and there was a little tiny thing in the newspaper about the speaker. And it, something about the FBI. And I said to Ken, I said, oh, there's something in the paper here about the speaker. The next day, there was a bigger article, something about a grand jury. The next day, I head to Columbus we go into caucus, and here comes the speaker. We're all there waiting, all 66 of us. And he came in with his arms crossed. It's a big crowd. And he said, I never wanted this job anyway. And I said to my colleague next to me, he's going to resign. And my colleague said to me, Heyman. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the guy who told you he was going to take your seat is losing his seat. And that's the first speaker in Ohio history to step down in disgrace under FBI investigation. We still don't really know what for. But the first speaker to ever step down in disgrace who threatened me, a nobody, from southwest Ohio. And, you know, I begin to remember about Esther and how Haman built that gallows for her. And, you know, I really began to think about 
how in the world that I, the only executive director of a pro-life pregnancy center in the nation to sit in any legislature, ever got, ever got there? And in the, in the seventh largest state in the union of 99 people, out of 11 and a half million people in Ohio, God put me in this place. And I thought about how God had brought me so far from just nothingness. And I'm, you know, I'm a wife and a grandmother and uh, the executive director. I feed and clothe women who are poor. That's what I do for a living. I beg for a living. I beg for baby formula and baby clothes. That's what I do for a living. And God somehow placed this hunger in my heart for, for more. And this church, Elevate Church is different than almost any church I've ever been in because you all have such a heart for outreach. You're totally into your community. Like you're light years beyond a lot of other churches that I have been to. You're already on your way. You're already with me on life. You're already out there. And so, you know, I guess my question for us now is where do we go from here as the church? We are literally living in a country that I love, but that is completely unhinged, okay? The whole nation, completely unhinged. Just like in the time of Esther, when all of a sudden she's minding her own business being queen, And this man gets a plan to annihilate an entire race of people, just like we annihilate the unborn. 3,800 babies a day, 3,800 babies a day, 70 a day in Ohio. And because Satan's goal, of course, is to destroy all of us. He hates all of us. He wants to kill all of us. And so the babies is the most logical place to start. And so she lived in a time of oppression of the people of God, as we now do also. And so she's born beautiful. She has access to the king. And she hears about this plan from this man named Haman who hates them, the Jews, because they won't bow. Just like the culture right now hates Christianity. They hate us. And we've seen it in the last two years. We've seen them despise us from a hundred different angles. And so... Esther is forced into this situation. She is going to be killed. She's going to die. And so now she's in this situation. And her cousin Mordecai comes to her and says, you're you're in close proximity to the king. No one else is. You're there in in the house with him. And if you don't intervene, just like that scripture I just read to you, you're going to, you will not be saved. You will die like all of us will. Um, you know, her husband, he's not, he's not a nice guy. He's kind of, a, kind of a thug, really. If you read his history, he's pretty tough. And she, if you'll notice, when she, the Bible tells us that it's been 30 days since she's been in the king's presence. And he has other wives, remember. And so she hasn't been in the presence of the king for a while. This is such a great view of the way the church is. I mean, I'm in, I'm in 30... 40 churches a year, and I will tell you, the church is virtually prayerless overall and powerless because they don't pray. They don't pray. And I thought about how Esther must have felt a little unlovable, unlovable, maybe not because she hadn't been with the king. And, you know, in those days, when you have other wives, you're with your other wives. And she comes into his presence she takes this risk because Mordecai tells her, 
You have to do this. Because who knows if God didn't put you here for such a time as this. And this, you know what happens to her? She begins to accept this role for herself that she has resisted, just like I resisted. And she realizes because of her access to the king, she has this opportunity. And she begins to speak with the mind of God. Because just like Jeff Workmeister thought, you know, he didn't wake up one day and think, oh, let's build a church. That's the easiest job in the world. You know, you have to come into a, a relationship with God where he begins to speak to you and through you and out of you. And pretty soon you begin to speak like he speaks. And we, we saw this in the life of David. Remember David? He's just this redheaded kid. And this giant comes daily to the Israelis and threatens them. And they just stand and take it. And he's probably 12 feet tall, and he calls them all kinds of names. And David's not there. And then he just shows up one day, probably bringing food to his brothers, I think. And he says, this is a great line. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine? What an insult that was. Taking on the armies of the living God. And he immediately, he's just a kid, but he turns and he begins to speak with the mind of God. Just like Esther begins to speak with the mind of God. And he says, who, who, who are you coming at the, the armies of the living God? Today, I'm going to kill you and the birds are going to eat your face off. That's what he tells him. He says this to the giant, Goliath. He speaks with the mind of God. And you know, I know that Goliath must have thought, that could maybe happen. You know, maybe that could happen. I don't know. And of course, it did happen. It happened exactly like David said, because he had the mind of God. And Esther begins to take on this persona. Oh, I'm going to have to go before the king now, and I'm going to have to get a plan in place. And she's very smart. She's a woman. And it's about food, okay? <laughs> and, you know, Haman is so arrogant, he wants everybody to bow and tremble, when he walks by, I'm so sure. This is so much like Columbus. And, you know, she makes up in her mind, if I die, she says this, if I die, I die. I mean, that's pretty resolute. When she goes into the king, he sees her, and he's immediately pleased to see her because it doesn't matter how we feel about the king. It's how he feels about us. And he's been waiting for her. Because you know why? Because she's still the bride. She'll always be the bride. The Bible tells us that our name is written on the palm of God's hand. Did you know your name is written on the palm of God's hand? When she goes in to see him, he's so happy to see her. And he extends the golden scepter. And she touches it. And that means, first of all, it means he's not going to kill her. I mean, that's how he was. But it meant he would talk with her. And so he says to her, what is it that you want? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. She hasn't even opened her mouth yet. She hasn't said anything. And he's already promised her up to half the kingdom. And she says, what I want is to make a meal for them, for, for you. She says, for you. And so a banquet. And... Haman is invited. And so they come to, so he's very intrigued by this. Oh, great, you know, a banquet. They go to the meal the next day, 
or so, and she has this fabulous banquet prepared. And then he's very intrigued. He's very interested because the food was great. And, you know, he says to her again, same thing, tell me, tell me what you want. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And again, she's so smart and she's so, um, she's got a plan. And she says, I want to prepare a bank, another banquet for them. The first time she says him, the second time she says them, which means that she is tending to the king's needs first. And the second time, now Haman is invited to both of these meals, but the first meal is for the king. The second meal is to just get Haman there. And when they come to the second banquet, it's a wonderful banquet. And by this time, the king is very, very, very caught up in this plan, and he's extremely intrigued by her, fascinated by her. She's beautiful, and he loves her. And when he comes in, he says to her, please, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want, up to half of the kingdom. And now she's ready, and she says, what I want is for you to deliver my people. And she tells him, um, Someone in the kingdom has planned to eradicate an entire race of people. And, you know, I love it because Haman says, or I'm sorry, the king says, he gets so mad. He says, who is he and where is he? I love that line. Who is he and where is he? Now, you put yourself in Haman's shoes. He's standing right there. He must have been quaking in his shoes. And... The king is so furious that he walks out of the room and he comes back in and there's a eunuch standing there and he says, hey, it's Haman is the guy and look at those gallows hanging over there. Let's hang Haman. Let's hang Haman on that gallows. And the king hangs Haman on the gallows. So the man who wanted to kill Esther and all of her people is hung on his own gallows. Isn't that an incredible story? Don't you love it when God vindicates us? You know, Esther became a co-regent with her husband because he trusted her. She saved him. And he says to her, she begins to write, rewrite a law of, of death into a, a law of life in her nation. She becomes a politician, a woman. And he says to her, what do you think we should do now? And she's very smart. She's strategically military-minded. And she says, well, now that you ask, Haman had 10 sons, and they're all going to come after you. So we need to hang them too. And he says, good idea. And they go and track down. These gallows must have been up for a while. Haman, I'm sure, built a really, really sturdy gallows, don't you think? And they hung all 10 of those sons on those gallows. Their intent was to eradicate a society of people they felt were unnecessary, like the unborn, the way we feel about the unborn. Christianity is under attack today because we are supposed to be the ones who marginalize. And it has been something that I have used time after time when I have been, when I sit on committees. And people that despise me 
Planned Parenthood and NARAL. Face Me. We passed a bill last year on um, not aborting Down syndrome babies. And I had a vote on that committee. And, you know, when they get to, around to you, it's incredible to me that I look those people in the face and say, and they'll say, how do you vote Representative Keller? And I'm like, no. Isn't that amazing? That God would ever place a person like me in a position like that. That is the incredible power of God to take nobodies and do something with them because they simply said yes. God is looking for people who will say yes. God providentially has placed you in your life wherever you're at. Politics probably isn't your thing. If you've got any sense, it's not your thing. Um, But, you know, it was the worst possible time for Esther, just like this is a difficult time for us. And, you know, she wasn't a day-to-day presence in the court. Many of you maybe have not been in uh, the presence of the Lord as much as you could have been. But that doesn't matter because the Lord continues to use us in our weakness. You know, I, I asked a pastor friend of mine, I said, I don't know that the church is really ready for what is now happening in our nation. Because I feel like there's only two things that can happen to us as a nation right now. We can either completely be overtaken by an enemy government and turned over to reprobation and communism or socialism or whatever comes from whatever nation. Or we can have revival. That's it. That's our two choices, okay? So we can either be completely throw in the towel and relinquish it all or we can turn to God. That's it. That's all we have. And as a Christian, I want to say to you, I worry, as I I said, I worry about the state of the church. But I said to a pastor friend of mine, how quickly can the church pivot into a prayerful mindset? How quickly can we get ready and begin to do battle? And he said to me, this pastor said to me, very quickly, you know, there's a scripture that, in, that says that things can, can change in Israel in one hour. Have you ever read that? Israel, things can change in one hour. And I'm, I'm putting confidence in the fact that the church can turn and be ready for this battle quickly. Uh, we have seen so much foolish activity in our nation in the last two years. I know if you're anything like me, sometimes I just turn it off. But there are other times when I think, what is my life here for? Am I going to be here to set forth an agenda of life and hope and health for this nation? Or am I just going to sit back and let somebody else do it? And I I have a, you know, I feel like I have a, a message for this church because you're already on the cutting edge of reaching out. And you already get what's going on and you're younger and you're energetic. But God can turn all of this around for good if we will simply say yes to him. And he will do that through the prayers of his people. Um, every day when I head to the state house, I feel myself putting on the armor. I can see the city from seven miles out rising in front of me. Um, and I don't, I don't like it there. I don't like the city. I like my district. I like to be here. But I, I, can, I, just, I just feel like I'm putting it on like that. Bring it. I don't know what it's going to be today, but just bring it. Whatever it is, whoever I run into, whatever bill I'm facing, whatever thing we're doing that's not righteous, Lord, bring it to my attention and show me how to fight this battle. And you know, the thing is, I'm not really a fighter by nature. I think I'm just mean. Um, And I can't stand to lose. 
And I can't stand to see evil prevail. And I can't stand to see the culture continue to lie to women. And I want to say to those of you here who've had an abortion, there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. There is no sin you can commit that is beyond the reach of the hands of Christ. And you can find peace. You can find peace in Jesus from anything that you've ever done. The the ultimate lie of abortion to women is this, after you've had one. Well, you did that one thing, so you couldn't possibly do do, do anything for the Lord. It's a paralyzing thing that the devil continues to try to speak to us, and it is always a lie. You know, Jesus called Satan the chief liar. In fact, like that's like the biggest liar there is. There's nothing that comes out of his mouth that's true. Everything is a lie. And that is the continual lie that is placed on women. The burden of abortion is bad enough. But then for the, the enemy to say to you, you are so not righteous, you can't do anything for God. That is the ultimate nightmare lie of all time. And it is not true. I look forward to what God is going to do here. And I'm going to close by telling a story uh, in light of the fact that we are on the cusp of Memorial Day tomorrow. But I had a friend who served in World War II when he was 19. He's dead now, passed away a few years ago. And he um, was from Texas. He'd never been outside of Texas. And he was in on one of the Pacific Islands in the heat of battle. They were trying to hold the island, and it was a place with a lot of caves and and uh, they were isolated from their uh, superiors. And his name is Bert. And he told that uh, almost everyone in his entire unit had been wiped out. There were maybe 70 men left. And, and he said, we had just about starved to death. We'd eaten fish head soup for days. And he said, I was down around 120 pounds. And he was a corporal, so he was the most senior person left. So he was in charge. And... The enemy was coming in, and he said, we were so tired and so filthy, and we had lost our equipment, and we couldn't communicate, and he said, I was so discouraged, and he said, I thought, if I die, I die. He said, we were, we were at that, having that frame of mind, okay, this is it, this is just how I'm going to go, and I'm 19, and I'm never going to see my parents again, and if I die, I die, and he said, we didn't know where the enemy was, and you know, we didn't, back in those days, they didn't communicate as good as we have what we have now. And he said, he did a good job of, of keeping the guys, you know, morale up and everything. But he said, we were getting ready to go to sleep. And the next day, the enemy was somewhere. We didn't know where. And he said, I looked over in the bushes, and there was a, a Japanese flag hanging, shredded and burned in the bushes. And he said, I thought to myself, if I don't keep fighting, that flag is going to fly over the White House. Because they'd been told that. We're going to fly our flag over your White House. And people believed that in 1943. And he said, the next day, we managed to prevail. And we, we killed the enemy off, and we held them off, and they stayed, they stayed back. And uh, several weeks later, he got notice that they were coming, they were allowed to go home. They were going to go home to San Francisco. And he said, when we got uh, to the night before, we were supposed to be there at the shore. Uh, We didn't have any, you know, we didn't have nice clothes. Our uniforms were a mess. And he said, so I had all the guys fold their uniforms as neatly as they could, and we slept on it so that it would look flat like it had been pressed. 
And he said, we were supposed to be there at six in the morning. We were there at four. We were dying to go home, dying to be home. And he said, when we got on the ship, they were so glad to see us, you know, and they looked so much better than we looked and they had weight on them and stuff. And he said, when we got to San Francisco, uh, there were thousands and thousands of people waiting on the shoreline of cheering. And he said, we didn't know any of them. We didn't even know who they were, but they were there waiting for us. And he said, I, I saw a big banner and it said, uh, we prayed for you. And he wasn't a Christian at, this, at that time. And you know, he said, I looked over and my, my men were kissing the ground and there was confetti and people were hugging us that we didn't even know. And he said, I thought, I cry. he said, I cried. And I looked around and it was so wonderful. It was just so wonderful. And he said, I looked around and I thought, I could go back and do all that all over again just for this. It's going to matter that we fought. It's going to matter that we stood for what was right. And I have to tell you, as I walked into the state house and the screaming, the demonic screaming that went on for three hours without stopping, three hours of demonic screaming. It sounded like locusts. It's the most fun I've ever had. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And when we got in the house, they finally called on me. I got to say everything I've ever in all of my 60 years been trained to say. I got to say everything I wanted to say. And you know, when we voted, we knew it was gonna pass, but the enemy was ready. And the second we, I hit that green button, these banners, they stood to their feet in the gallery, which you're not allowed to do, and they began to scream at us, scream at us how much they hated us. And they dropped banners down that said, this is not a house of worship. And I thought, oh yes it is, because I'm here and I'm the church. And the speaker had to clear the house because we had had to shut down and you know, it was just what they wanted. took about 20 minutes. They left. We went ahead and voted a second time on putting our name onto the bill. My husband and I ran down. Uh, we couldn't, it was too dangerous to go out front where the people were. So we went down the back stairway underground, went over to the Senate. They passed it in 15 minutes. 15 minutes they passed it. I couldn't believe it. <clears throat> I, I, I thought it was a dream. I couldn't believe after nine years, nine years that it, it happened. And when I got home that evening, the speaker texted me. We have a new speaker now, by the way, pro-life speaker. And uh, he texted me, he said, the governor's signing this bill at 3 tomorrow, 3.30 tomorrow, be there. And, uh, you know, when I went in and we went in, uh, Jennifer Gross, who's from Westchester, my, my friend and hopefully my future office holder from Westchester, she was with me. We went in and there were probably 50 uh, cameras and TV people, NPR and everybody, MSNBC, all those people. And the governor came in and he, he signed it. 
And I looked at that and I thought, we just stopped killing 20,000 babies a year in Ohio. And you know why that is? Because a little Pentecostal girl took a chance and said yes and ran for office and put myself on the line and almost humiliated myself, but instead I got to stop the killing of babies. And And you know, I, I don't say that at, at, for any reason to exalt myself because you know as well as I do, it was all God. But the governor turned to me after he signed it. They had all the ink pens laying there. You better believe I grabbed one. And he turned to me and he said, well, you did it. And I said, oh, I didn't do it. God did this. God did this. And so now, of course, we're facing, you know, now there's 14 states that have done, we're the first one. Ohio is the first one because as Ohio goes, so goes the nation. And, you know, I would encourage you today to pray for us. And we, I am fervently praying for the church to rise up and say enough is enough. We have had it. No more rainbow colored White House. Marriage is between a man and a woman. I know what bathroom to use on about you all, but I do. Uh, transgender is fake. There's two sexes. Did you know that? Did you know there's two sexes? Do you know that's all there is? And you know what? You know what's coming around the bend, and I will warn you because I know because of the line of work I'm in. You know what's next? Normalizing pedophilia is coming. It's right around the bend. How much more is the church going to take? When are we going to stand up and say, "Are you kidding me with this? We're not doing this anymore. You're not allowed to do this here. You're not doing this here." Do you know there's a local high school that set up an LGBTQT table at their school? Are we going to just? Let everybody in the world come on in. It's time for the church to rise up and say, no, we're gonna, this nation, this state will live for righteousness. We will not kill the unborn. We do not believe in infanticide. We will do everything we can to strengthen the family. And we're gonna lift Jesus Christ up until he comes again. That's what we're doing. So I praise God today for the fight. I know that you're standing with me and I'm standing with you. We are in the closing moments. Don't you feel the earth is laboring for the coming of the Lord? He is coming quickly. There's very little time and we must work and it's going to matter what we do for Jesus Christ. I thank you today and I love the Lord. Thanks for listening to Elevate Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for service on Sundays or at a dinner party on Friday nights. Check out our Facebook, Instagram, or website at elevate.city for more information.